Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Life insurance is something that is very important in the wealth planning and wealth management world, and it's a key to putting people in a good place as far as their long-term goals. To help us understand a little bit more about this, I have Andreas Stuerman. He and I have worked together on a variety of things over the years, and I thought he'd be a great voice to talk a little bit about life insurance and why it's important to structure it correctly and some good ins and outs. Andreas, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me, Fraser. Appreciate the opportunity. I think you're absolutely right. I think maybe it might be helpful at this point in time to maybe go over a little bit about what life insurance is intended to do. Perhaps would that be a good way for us to get started? Yes, absolutely. I think the functions are important. But let's talk a little bit about your background first and how you came to be in the life insurance industry. You've placed over $3 billion of risk mitigation over the years. How did you get to that point? Yeah, sure. Of course. Happy to give you the fast version. I managed to get recruited out of school when I went to school out west and started working for a company called John Hancock and learned the business from there. I grew up from selling insurance individually to becoming a bit more of a wholesale specialist, working brokerage, working a little more on advanced sales opportunities, kind of learned my path out there. And when it came time for me to advance my career too, I was actually recruited and ended up working at a firm called Winkiel Group in New York City, where I managed to do a lot of their design work. I kind of became the numbers guy, if you will. Interesting, awesome assignment in that we would cater to a lot of very wealthy and illiquid senior executives, business owners, private equity investors. And I came to learn where insurance could really be a very helpful solution to some of the problems that these people might have, namely taxes and liquidity. And I came to also learn how to put information together in a concise fashion where we really would spend a lot of time to really boil down information by the time we ultimately end up presenting to these people. So it was a really, really awesome assignment. And I did that for a number of years, really got training, awesome training there. And in 2003, I decided to start my own shop. So I took a lot of the knowledge I'd acquired over the years and started my own shop. I would be remiss to tell you that I didn't get humble by starting my own business at first Two, the first year or two were certainly challenging, but I've now come up on 18 years and have built up an interesting practice too that caters to all sorts of people. Really our specialty is life insurance, but we have a couple ancillary services as well too, which we can get into a little bit too as we start talking here a little bit, but that's my background in a nutshell, give or take. Terrific. So let's get back to 60,000 foot view. How do you think about the function of life insurance? For me, when I think about it and it comes in the context of clients, there are two huge functions. And the first one is to replace income in a family situation so that spouse and family are not left resourceless if a terrible tragedy happens. Another function, I think, is to pay for estate taxes and other costs when someone dies. And then there's the concept of life insurance as an investment or as a tax avoidance vehicle and those features. How do you think about it in the context of dealing with clients? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's really two layers of answers I would give you. The first one is what you exactly just said. Life insurance in its purest form protects families if they lose a breadwinner and it replaces income. So it really is a solution to a real life problem that way. 
for individuals. The other thing where we see life insurance being a very useful tool as well is to keep businesses going too. If you have a business owner that dies, if you have a key person that unexpectedly passes on, all of a sudden you have an influx of capital tax-free that keeps the business going. So I think a lot of people sometimes fail to actually see the purpose there, but I think it's a very useful tool for the orderly continuation of a business. And then lastly, especially this is a timely point that you raised, Fraser, taxes are very likely going up and life insurance itself too is afforded a number of very unique tax advantages. We're seeing this second layer of the answer to your question is where people that either earn a high income and or have significant balance sheets too, they are looking at life insurance as a bit more of a asset class, if you will where if you buy insurance and you really put a lot of money into it, you can let the money grow tax deferred and eventually access it income and capital gains tax-free. So that's a very interesting approach for people that are interested in maximizing after-tax income during their lifetime. The other thing that you touched on and where we spend a lot of time right now is second-to-die life insurance that is, of course, used to fund eventual state taxes even when they come due. And we're finding the reason why these products are becoming increasingly attractive is once you kind of model out what their projected rates of return are or what their costs are all in over the course of time as well, too, they're attractive tools in the planner's toolbox. But it's really a lot of discussions we're having right now, too, to really take advantage of the tax advantages that are afforded to them to essentially help you keep more of what you earn and own. Right. And so a flexible and timely tool in the toolbox. And you talked about dealing with the law as we have it now and trying to look it around the corner and figure out what the Biden tax reforms look like. Is there anything on the horizon that concerns you or you see as an opportunity based on what you've read so far, which is <laughs> I'm not asking you to pull out your crystal ball here because I've made a career of being wrong, predicting politicians and uh, policy on things like that. But what are you seeing <laughs> on that front? Well, I think for us looking ahead, too, it's great news. I think, as I've mentioned just before, too, with income and capital gains tax, very likely haven't potentially already gone up for high income earners, too. I think that's at least what the Green Book is indicating at this point in time. We believe that life insurance and the living benefits of life insurance, too, are going to become increasingly attractive to a lot of people, too, that earn a high income just as a way to mitigate taxes, as you pointed out earlier correctly. And I think the other aspect of taxes in terms of what we're seeing here, and nobody quite knows yet exactly where that's going to settle, but whether or not they're going to go lower the shields or the exemption amounts on estate taxes and or are tinkering with step-up basis at death, which is just another way of taxing the transfer of wealth at death, right? We're also seeing that the notion about irrevocable life insurance trusts or having policies owned outside of your estate becoming a very, very attractive and useful tool to create liquidity for taxes if you're living at or at death. Where it's all going to settle, we don't know. We do read with interest what's being published in the Green Book. We do know that or expect that certainly capital gains taxes are on their way up. And we also expect that estate taxes and or some form of transfer tax, whatever they're going to end up calling it to, are going to go up to, which means that a lot more clients will be affected as far as their tax planning is concerned. So you talked about islets, which are irrevocable life insurance trusts. Maybe go through it, what the benefit of having insurance owned in a trust and outside of the insured's estate does for you. It's a strategy from a state planning perspective that's been around for a long time. 
It does require legal help. So it actually requires a lawyer to bring into existence a separate entity that can own the life insurance policy and be the beneficiary of the proceeds as well. And the person that would put it in then can either gift the money to the islet subject to whatever gifting rules that are available and or lend if they so desire to do so. In the current low interest rate environment, that is certainly an attractive strategy. But the main benefits of an irrevocable life insurance trust are twofold, I would say. One, if it's properly set up, if it's properly funded, and the person eventually dies, the proceeds, the death proceeds from the insurance policies are in capital gains and estate tax-free. So it's really the trifecta right there, which makes them a very, very attractive tax planning tool. Works well for people too that are wealthy on paper, but not very liquid. So this creates liquidity by the time taxes might be due. And that's the tax aspect of the benefit of an irrevocable life insurance trust. The other aspect, this is a little bit more real life, but this can happen as well too, is if they are structured properly, again, I don't give tax advice, this is what lawyers are tasked to do for their clients, but it'll protect the assets both from creditors, predators, divorcees, you name it too. So those are really the primary advantages of these particular structures. And I think from a risk perspective, it's a pretty low risk strategy that's been used an awful lot over the years too, that's fared well and done well over the years too. I think the IRS is not necessarily blessed per se too, but they go after other things or other structures that are a lot more risky. Revocable life insurance trusts are pretty low risk on the spectrum, I would say. And as such, a useful planning tool. Yeah. And I would say along with that structuring and asset protection perspective, it's a way for families, if they have beneficiaries that may not be the most sophisticated or otherwise equipped to deal with new inflows of liquidity, you can put structure around the distributions within that trust structure as well. All of those points are well taken. So trusts, as I like to tell people, every trust has a grantor, it has a trustee, and it has beneficiaries. Within that trustee function, many individuals are tasked with being the trustees, often family members, etc., I tell people that may not be a great idea. There's a lot of work and issues involved with that, and you can create problems if you don't follow through on a lot of the form and function. And if you don't pay things like the premiums for the life insurance policies in time, you can really screw things up big time. Where do you see problems with having individuals taking on that trustee role? So you hit the nail on the head, and this is one of, I think, the single biggest issues that the people are faced with actually making sure that these structures are managed properly. I think, above all, most friends and family members, as you're referencing them to be serving as a trustee for a life insurance trust, are generally clueless when it gets to the products themselves and how they're affected by the economy and the general environment. And what I mean by that is, for example, Interest rates have come down over the past few years or are now at historical lows. The insurance policies, for the most part, are affected by that, not in a good way. So if you, for example, purchased a whole life policy maybe 10 years ago and the insurance agent at the time was sharing with you if that the policy were to earn a certain interest rate assumption, which was noticeably higher then than it is today, the premiums might go away or quote unquote vanish. And because of interest rates have gone down so much, the premiums did not vanish. In fact, it kept reappearing. So a lot of people are just generally not clueless as to how the policies are affected by the economic environment. Asset is subject to the Uniform Prudent Investors Act, 
or you as a trustee have potential liability if you don't make sure that this asset is prudently managed. You have to have the beneficiary's best interest in mind. You want to make sure that the costs are held to the lowest possible level and that benefits are maximized. So if you don't fulfill these particular functions right here too, and things go sideways, which they can, you can find yourself on the receiving end of a lawsuit potentially. There's been a couple of court cases out there where policies did not work out. I think the trustees did not do their job and or didn't disclose potential conflicts of interest too, and the beneficiaries went after them, and sometimes they were successful, sometimes not. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that, that's a lot for an individual who's not well-versed in the arcane details of being a trustee or in the investment components of understanding how insurance works. That's a lot to take on that they may not have known before walking into that position. I think the other thing to really paint you the picture a little bit more clearly the amount of life insurance that's held in trust right now is in the trillions. So this is not a small number. This is a real number and a real problem. And if you don't have a firm like Pendleton Square or other trust companies that are well-versed with all the intricacies of making sure you manage your assets prudently, and a lot of these trusts are managed by an accountant, by a brother-in-law, by somebody who they think have some sort of financial acumen, they buy the insurance policies we see and they put it in the drawer and they forget about it. And sometimes when, by doing so, they run into problems too that I guess we can talk about this a little while too, that, that can potentially blow up the policy, potentially create adverse tax consequences and you know worst case scenario lawsuits as well. We also see, I would just add to this real quick here too, is one thing where, again, where it pays to have a professional trustee that kind of understands how assets work, how risk works, how products work. We still see sometimes people that have older clients too that were put into variable life insurance policies, which is completely and utterly unsuitable. So if you want to start talking to people about where they're sitting on the risk profile, you want to make sure you match the insurance product with your client's risk profile. So all sorts of stuff that can go wrong. I think long story short, if you can pawn off or transfer the responsibility of prudently managing these types of assets to a professional, that understands all the ins and outs too, money well spent. As I like to tell people, it's a little bit like warfare where you have long periods of time that are strictly boredom and then moments of terror when something horrible happens and it's good to have a steady hand at the wheel. Touche. Totally agree. <laughs> so as you talked about a little bit about making sure that the insurance within a trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries is suitable, what is your best practice for reviewing these policies? What are you looking for when you're seeing low interest rate environment, how do you go about understanding whether the policy is still performing versus what the state of the market is and whether there are opportunities there? There are some vendors out there, too, that I think are providing meaningful services, but I think they're still short. What we like to see in policy review or when we are tasked with looking at insurance policies, we really focus, I think, on one of four things. The first one would just be a snapshot of actually who the current policy owner or beneficiary are. You would be surprised sometimes to see that even some insurance companies don't have the proper record of exactly how the policy is set up. So I would start there just to kind of ask somebody to generate an actual statement that says, if somebody were to die, who and where are the proceeds payable to? I think that's a pretty good checkpoint to start with. The second item that we think would be helpful, and this gets 
back to the discussion we just had about things can potentially go wrong is to get a snapshot of where the policy currently stands. What are the current values? And I'm not just talking here about cash or cash surrender value. I'm also talking about potential loan values. Let me give an example. Getting back to this whole life policy we just talked about. If somebody bought an insurance policy in trust and for whatever reason decided to discontinue paying the premiums, you can loan the premiums against the cash value if you'd like to do that. And sometimes people may even get a statement too that shows what the cash value balance is and what the loan value balance is, but nobody's paying any attention to it. Guess what? The loan interest that is charged on the loan account within this insurance policy, it gets charged a much higher interest rate than the cash value that is being credited with the insurance company right now, by thereby creating negative arbitrage. And if all of a sudden the loan account starts exceeding cash value, you may run into the point to where the policy actually does lapse and to boot at some adverse income tax consequence to the policy owner. So we think that getting values, not just cash values, but loan values would also be quite helpful for people to see. The third item we think is very poorly managed by most vendors, unfortunately, is to get enforced projections not just at a current return assumption, whatever the insurance company is currently crediting, but we think where there would be more value for clients to, to really understand how their policies are affected, to do some stress testing, to lower the rate of return assumption, to put some stress on the policy itself and see what happens if this rate of return assumption isn't realized. Do we need to increase the funding? Do we need to manage the policy? Do we need to lower the death benefit? all sorts of stuff that you can do, but very few people actually take the time to put some stress on the policy and give you a couple of possible outcomes. And then last but not least, of course, life insurance is a usually by definition a, a long asset that's held for a long time. I think you'd want to understand what the insurance company's financial condition is, understand what the ratings are, understand how they're set up, understand their business mix, and understand how their underlying portfolio earns or if it's earning a decent rate of return over time. We have found that the best practices, as you refer to, can sometimes be to some degree delegated to technology vendors that are starting to automate some of this process a little bit, but we're still finding that the actual review of a policy to is still not enough. So you really want to work with somebody who understands the product, who understands the marketplace, who understands what the options are, and then kind of bring it all together to almost like a package deal, if you will, too. So that's where we think we can add a little value. That's where you can add a little value, too. But you always have to like pull from a lot of different sources to bring it all together. At the end of the day, it is like what you guys are doing for your clients, too, right? We provide the structure and the administrative services, and we interact with other people who are keeping an eye on how the assets within a trust are dealing with it. So it's incumbent to understand that expertise to make sure that the trusts itself are going concerns, as it were, and that they perform what they're set up to do. So oftentimes, the troubling component with many insurance experts is that they're always looking for a sale. And so it's something where the advice that you get is geared toward that. That's not to say that there aren't times when these types of scenarios that insurance shouldn't be replaced. I tend to think of it more in terms of how often should the insurance be reviewed and maybe to frame it differently. To me, an annual review is, let's call it extremely prudent. Whereas if you don't review a policy at least every five years, I think you're being extremely imprudent. Does that square with your thinking or is that something that am I not thinking about it correctly? 
No, I think that's really good. And I think the only thing that would add to it, there is a, a policy design or structure that was introduced a few years ago, referred to as no lapse guarantee life insurance, which is if you pay the premium, the insurance carrier would contractually guarantee the death benefit. However, that's become a little cumbersome or a little finicky, if you will, because if you do pay the premiums too soon or too late, that can adversely affect the guarantee. So being a little bit more specific as to products themselves, I think these products that have these long-term no-lapse guarantees should require an annual review to make sure that the premium number one was received and number two was received at the right time. As for permanent insurance policies, I think five years is too far out too. I think two to three or one to two years is probably appropriate, especially if it's a larger portfolio of insurance policies too. It never hurts just to kind of look at them too and pull the information together. If anything else too, sometimes gives you the opportunities to kind of make sure that your client understands what they have, how the economy affects it, and make sure that this structure is still really needed to achieve their goals and objectives. But I think for one particular product too, I would definitely recommend an annual review for no lapse guarantee policies, and the other ones, one to two, two to three years. That's good thinking. So a practical consideration that I've seen pop up in these structures is for those people who make annual gifts or have some sort of recurring funding structure that funds the premiums that are paid in these trusts, sometimes they don't want to transfer those funds over in a timely manner. And it ends up being a bit of a bagging cats scenario where the trustee is trying to locate the funds to pay for the premiums. And you end up sometimes with a very down to the wire situation that can be scary. And so I caution people, especially for those who are taking on the role of being an individual trustee in these scenarios, that year one and year two can sometimes be fine, not much work, no big deal. Maybe they pre-funded some of the premiums when they set up the transaction, but then years five, six, et cetera, and beyond, it can become a bit more of a chore. Have you seen that in your experience? Very much so. I think, and again, these are long-term structures, so this becomes repetition and People sometimes might lose interest or forget or maybe forget what they were told to do. So, yes, I think once time goes on a little bit, people do get a little tired, but that does not relieve them from their duties. And as we talked about, some insurance products require timely premium payments. So if you go too soon or too late and all of a sudden somebody says, hey, wait a minute, I thought my policy was supposed to be guaranteed age 100. Now it's only like age 87. What happened here? We got some explaining to do, right? So I think that's true. And I think it just requires a process. It requires ideally not just one person, but a team of people that kind of understand this is when the premiums due. This is when we need the money in the trust. This is when we need the crummy letters done by, et cetera, et cetera, just to make sure the money goes there. And then more importantly, perhaps in the real world, and I'm seeing this more and more now, is the U.S. Postal Service is not what it once was. So sometimes people mail in their premium check, and that can take sometimes weeks for it to show up on the other end. So for bigger insurance policies that we manage, as an example, too, we do everything by wire transfer just to make sure, too, that gets recorded and quickly and have everything in writing, too. You just want to act, I think, prudently and cautiously to make sure you don't miss premium payments or pay them too soon or too late to adversely affect guarantees that people are counting on. So as we wind up here, you mentioned a couple of other things that your firm does. What other types of things are you looking out for to help clients manage their risk? And then toward the end of it, let us know how we can stay in touch with you. So life insurance is certainly our 
lead horse, for lack of a better word, too. We understand a lot about where you can use it, how you can use it, how you should use it, and when not to use it, frankly. I think our approach is a little different from the traditional salespeople in that we only recommend it if it makes sense. And we only recommend it when it makes sense after we've consulted with a client's advisors. And if they say it makes sense, too, and we get engaged, then that's great. One other emerging area, too, where we're finding people having an interest in, too, and this may not be directly affected, but you're asking, is long-term care planning. So that's another area, too, where we can be quite useful. Oftentimes, you can actually sometimes marry life insurance and long-term care structures into one. We do deal with wealthy folks where large blocks of life insurance are required and held and owned by islets which is what we're talking about here today for the most part. And then we also work quite a bit with business owners and mid-sized businesses as well, helping them with tax minimization, key talent retention, and exit and succession planning too. Oftentimes, insurance can play a role in these types of discussions as well. Those are really the four sandboxes that we play in, and it's served us reasonably well over the years. The way you can stay in touch with us, you can just visit our website if you'd like at www.stewermanconsulting.com and there you find a little bit more information about what our firm does, how we go about our business, and it's got plenty of contact information as well. So that's how you can get in touch with us if you'd like to learn more. Terrific. Andreas, thank you very much. I'll have the contact information and the website, et cetera, on the show notes for people who are listening. In the meantime, any parting words? What are you doing this summer? Oh, well, thanks, Fraser. I'm glad you asked. We're actually going to manage to go down the Jersey Shore, both later this month and in the first two weeks of August, just to go to the beach. I think Seagirt is the destination. Now that the world's opening up again a little bit, our family is enjoying going to the beach. So we're going to be spending some time there. And then our kids are, one's a rising senior in high school, the other one a rising sophomore in college, too. They'll be gone before you know it as well, too. So we're going to try to get as much family time as we can. But that's what's on the docket for our summer. And we're looking much forward to it. Thanks for asking. Terrific. Andreas, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.